0: Subscribe to the Cyblogs podcast in iTunes or on the Cyblogs website, www.syblogs.co.nz. Also, find us on Facebook and on Twitter at CyblogsNZ. On the Cyblogs podcast this week, Michael T. Jones, the co-founder of Google Earth, on where the digital earth movement is going. Our marine protected areas? Are we doing enough to protect our biodiversity? And is soil bacteria contributing to antibiotic resistance? Welcome to the Cyblogs podcast, episode 42 for the 31st of August. I'm Peter Griffin coming to you from the Science Media Center here in Wellington, And soon I'll be talking the digital earth movement with Google Earth co-founder Michael T. Jones. And boy, what a treat that was for me. Fascinating guy, a huge brain with a big background in technology. You'll hear more from him soon. We'll also hear some of the highlights from the inaugural professorial lecture of Professor Jonathan Gardner, a marine reserve expert at Victoria University. Professor Gardner has been looking at our network of marine protected areas scattered around the country and trying to ascertain whether they are sufficient by international standards to protect and maintain our marine biodiversity. And we'll wrap things up with an interview with a scientist who was published in the journal Science this week who's going to give us a heads up on his research, which suggests that the overuse of antibiotics in rearing livestock... Or even the contamination of soil and water with waste containing high levels of antibiotics could be fueling the antibiotics resistant crisis the world is experiencing. But first, Google Earth. It appeared in 2005 and quickly became a tool of wonder for millions of people curious about the geography of planet Earth. Now Google Earth has over a billion users and is used by scientists, governments, businesses, even the military to overlay geospatial data for all sorts of uses. Even regular internet users can plot their own data on Google Earth. And it all means that a true digital Earth is closer than we ever imagined. One where we get unprecedented visibility into the information that is important to us on so many different levels. Michael T. Jones is one of the founders of Google Earth. He helped develop the platform when he was at the company Keyhole. Michael essentially got sold with the company to Google and now travels the world as a technology advocate for the Internet giant. He was in Auckland last week for Project Revolution, a big social media conference at AUT, and visited just ahead of next week's Digital Earth Summit. Here in Wellington, it's going to be a pretty cool conference too. I asked Michael about the next generation Google Earth and what the barriers are to getting the information on the map that will give the unified digital view of the world that, despite the technology advances, is still actually lacking.
1: The barriers there are are really in the realm of public policy, more than computer or mathematical science. So. So the issues would be around privacy, around uh, national economic competitiveness. You know, do I want to tell you all my data, or am I afraid you'll figure something out that would hurt me in the stock market? You know, that that sort of those are the questions that countries grapple with. Like, share, more share is more good, but also more sharing enables more bad, and so you, you need to uh, understand that. You know, and, and then form a national opinion on that. For example, economic precursor d- uh, data about crop yields and you know, so things like. Uh, Water levels and uh, uh, rainfall and so forth are, are, are ways you can model future prices of, of grain and things like that. Um, and that's worth a, a lot of money to people. Um, it, it's also, it, so it, it's not that it shouldn't be shared, not that it shouldn't be really available even. It's just that it makes a it difference. It, 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 it affects the economy when it's shared. And so it affects the economy when it's not shared. So, so politicians and economists have to have a debate about, what's the right way to affect the economy of the particular country in question. And and, and what they've done that, the actual the act of sharing and the act, act of processing did that data, that, that's pretty well understood. Now, uh, a whole Earth model for these things is, is, is not understood, uh, but it's a, a natural outgrowth of just having the data, having access to the data. It, the data is not really readily available yet. There's, there's ever more data, but um, m- many of these things are such that what you need is a, a pretty comprehensive data set. You know, you don't need... To know the traffic at, at every intersection, but you need to know the traffic at at sort of intersections all over the city to get an understanding of the citywide traffic flow. And so, so if, if only the west half of the city was instrumented, you really wouldn't know anything. Whereas if half of the whole city was instrumented, you know at random, you would know everything. So, so, so it's one of those things where you need uh, a, a kind of a broad sampling of data. And at present this data is, is, is more available in the G20 countries than it is in the G180 countries.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: and, and it's, so it's, it's just difficult. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It's just, it's just difficult. I mean, you you need, you need to know how things are going in Laos as well as in uh, China, you know, and, and it doesn't, having does, I mean, one doesn't, is better than nothing, but it isn't really a complete picture. Uh, just think about it like it was weather forecasting. You, you need to know if it was really hot somewhere, already cold somewhere having a big hole in your knowledge would
0: have a huge impact on the overall truth yeah, um, and you know, there definitely seems to be a, a movement towards greater information sharing, particularly in in areas of public interest and you know health uh, especially that and I know, you know google 's done some really good work on google flu trends so there 's Uh, I think in areas like that, where um, we've had a big pandemic in 2009, the World Health Organization is very interested in getting a more accurate picture on the spread of pandemics. There are pockets where that collaboration is a a great imperative for every country that can offer the data.
1: That's right. And I I I think think you're right to choose pandemic as an example where no one benefits from being the last to know that everybody in their country has some terrible disease. That could have been prevented by early vaccination. No one benefits from that, right? So, no. so, 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 every, every, everybody wants to solve that kind of a problem. And so, that, so, countries are good at rallying around that, and we've had good results. Some, some good results of our own, but also just good interactions with governments, where they, they didn't. To the, you know, governments might debate whether or not street views good, but they don't debate whether or not knowing about you know incidents of, of swine flu is good. They, they all want to know that, and so. And so the problem there is, is, is a legal one. It's about international health records. So there are things that Google can detect uh, because the way people search, so as, as what you referred to there with the flu, flu prediction, this is when people search for symptoms of a disease. And, and we noticed that in, a, in Wellington, say, in the last week, there have been an extraordinary number of people searching for symptoms so some of the same disease. Well, that, that probably means something, right? It doesn't necessarily mean there's a disease there. It could be that someone mentioned it on television and everybody looked it up. You know, it doesn't mean that, that they're all sick. But it, but in general, if they all suddenly mention you know, search, searching for flu symptoms, then probably somebody in their house is sick. So so the the, the noticing that an unusual correlated level of search activity for some symptoms or some disease is a good signal for have Google just send a, an email to the head of the Health organization in Wellington and say we've noticed a lot of flu searches. You might want to check that out. So, so, so that at that level, that works really, really well. Okay, and, that, and that's worldwide things happens. we we're, mm. we're, we love doing that. Mm. And what doesn't work well, and which I bothers me personally tremendously, is that it's impossible for Google or anybody else, the World Health Organization or anybody, to get a broad personal health data of people. So. So imagine if you took personal medical records and took out all the information about what city, what country, what address, what age, you just know, had person this age with this behavior and this medical problem, this treatment and this outcome. If you had that across hundreds of millions of people, then you could do a statistical modeling of of cause and effect in human health. That is called evidence-based medicine, and and we could dramatically improve. Human life through that mechanism, and so we have volunteered use of our of our computers to people who could do this, like some governments could do this, maybe some the UN could do this, some World health organization, uh, or we've volunteered to do it ourselves. Whatever, it would just make a lot of sense to do that. And and that particular initiative, for example, at present time is just impossible because in every country there are such complex laws about health records that there's just no way to to get a big pile of them together. Even taking out all the personal things which nobody cares about. Um, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a step that society needs to take, I believe, that it has not yet been willing to take globally, that I believe is, and you know, I think your grandchildren will live in a better world than you do because of that. But somebody someday will make that happen.
0: If we're increasingly using Google Earth and Google Maps as well as location-based services, things like Foursquare on our mobile phones, Google has something else in mind for how we might interact with these types of services in future. Augmented reality. In June, Google co-founder Sergey Brin unveiled Project Glass. This is a pair of glasses fitted with a small heads-up display that is fed with geospatial information and updates from the Internet. It's like a smartphone built into a pair of specs, and it's part of a movement towards wearable computers that Michael Jones believes we'll see computers, as we know them, disappear entirely.
1: What, what is, what's the, what the important trend there is not so much the physical glasses, but the, the broad concept. Because there are many people working on head mount displays, many, many. And and they're all great, That, that that's not, it's not an issue. What's important is that, question is, how should you see, how should you be presented information when you're wearing such a device? So, as you mentioned, augmented reality. So, so how should your reality be augmented to do a good job of, of of helping you lead a better life? You know, so for example, um, should should the should there be a camera that sees things and it, it interprets that for you, or should there be uh, you know audio signals coming into your ears uh, while you are in um, you know, a wearing this? If so, how, how what level of of help would be helpful and what level of help would be intrusive, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so, so there's, some, there's some questions about that. But but I have no doubt that the, the general trend over the next decade will be that computers will become invisible. That is, you won't know, like, like right now, if somebody's using a computer, you, you can tell because they're sitting in front of something and they're typing at a keyboard, right? And if somebody's using a phone, you can tell that because they're holding it next to their ear or they're walking around looking at the screen like the you know, hunchback. And so those modes of interacting with data are going away replaced with something where you wear the computer in the sense it's built into your belt buckle or your shoe or you know something the glasses and and, and you get data by simulation of your normal senses so maybe you hear something or maybe you see something maybe you feel something and the, the question then would be you know what should that something be if you've ever used google maps to get directions and then tried to follow those directions, uh, hey, walking or, or driving a car, well, this, it, you know, the, our directions are very good, but looking at the directions is actually not very good. But you don't want to look at the directions. You want to look at where you're walking or where, where you're driving. So if you imagine we were saying, turn left now, turn right now, without any visible anything, just in your ear you heard like left, left, or maybe maybe you felt a tap on your left shoulder, your right shoulder, because you wore, because you're, you know, your, your shirt did that. You, know, you can imagine a world where you were informed of what you needed to know about, what you chose to know about, but not because you're looking or typing at something, but because you're wearing something which clues you in. You know, imagine a watch that, you know, tapped on the left side of your wrist for go left and the right side for go right. You could just navigate through some complex maze just without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the, you know, that's thing to think of. Think of it that way. Don't, don't don't focus on, you know, the glasses what they look like or the, you know, whatever. It's just. Imagine where you couldn't see any of that, and all you did was live your life, but you had a little bit of extra information available to you, uh, hear or see or feel, that made things work better for you. And what would that be like? And and, and that's what we care about, and and we're we're pretty sure there's something there that doesn't involve sitting in front of a laptop computer and typing at a keyboard. Maybe they wear funny glasses. Maybe they wear some future high-technology contact lenses. Maybe, you know, I I don't know. You know, I don't don't know how, how 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 the appliance is built. That's the least... Interesting part from a futurist point of view. what's interesting is the idea that a few billion people will just know things without any obvious external way of realizing how they know them. If everything, if everything you look at, I could somehow tell you the Wikipedia article about it just while you were looking at it. You would seem a lot smarter than you seem now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, and so like if you could look at your baby and tell whether that was a dangerous rash or or unimportant rash, it would be like you'd be like a baby doctor, right? You, mm. you only have to go to the doctor when Things are really bad. And you could call the doctor and say it's this strange, very, very. I mean, you'd know things. Hmm. So, so we want to help you know those
0: things. So you can see where this is going. The next step is building the computers into our own bodies, doing away with the peripheral gadgets altogether. You might have a heads-up display beamed directly into your eyeball, or a built-in feed to Wikipedia, supplementing your own memory and intelligence. Scientists are at work on sort of all of this stuff, and Jones says we can look to the military for some of the biggest advances so far.
1: You, I mean, you see that, for example, in uh, the design of military fighter airplane pilot instrumentation systems. That's the place right now where humans get the most data, have to make the quickest decision, and the most money and, and, and outcomes on the line. And so that's the place where governments are willing to pay, you know, $10 million or. Hundred million dollars to make a single airplane talk better to the pilot, and and so you know they they do really amazing things there. You know, so for example, some of these airplanes you fly them, and there there are other pilots around you, other missiles, friendly, enemy, and you hear voices representing everything in the space around you, positioned in 3D audio. So because of the way the audio is processed in your ears, it sounds like somebody's directly behind you or kind of to the right of you, the way you would normally understand that in a crowd, the computer can make that, that information happen to your ears now in airplanes, uh, in, you know, in advanced airplane context. And so it can tell you things like, oh, there's a missile coming, and you immediately know where the missile is compared to you because of the, the sound of that voice is at a certain position. That, that's, that's fantastic, right? We can have that for you when you're driving your car. because you have other cars around you a pedestrian and you would just know instantly where they are even without seeing them. I, I think the opportunities in, in, in that sort of space that are really revolutionary to the ordinary human experience. And, and mm. So I just want to build that and see, see how to use it.
0: There's a website devoted to Google Earth discoveries. It's called Google Earth GoogleEarthAnomalies.com and it shows images of all sorts of things that people have spotted on Google Earth that they can't quite explain. A few weeks ago, the satellite archaeologist Angela Mickle spotted two sites in Egypt that resemble what she suggests are previously undiscovered ancient pyramids. Scientists are now setting out to investigate that, and it's just one example, really, of a discovery made through browsing Google Earth, an aspect of the platform Michael Jones never really anticipated. It's
1: it's a a, a pleasant and glorious surprise, the success of Google Earth in that particular way. None of us involved in creating it. And none of the people currently involved in building it and growing it really ever expected that. What we did expect, which is similar, was that every child would finally know what the world was like. And you know, I would imagine hundreds of millions of children who would fly around the world in curiosity, and they would see where the pyramids were, and they would see what the Everest was, and they would really see it. Like they would see, well, the pyramids are about uh, seven kilometers from the Cairo airport. Or, you know, that, is, that would actually uh, some some tangible understanding as opposed to just a, a vague notion of a pyramid. And, and that, that we imagined that the curiosity of children and the power of computers would need to fulfill that. And, and basically, for myself and my buddies, we had felt that as children. So we said, oh, well, if I could be eight years old again, I would want this. Mm. <laughs> I, I know all the other kids would want this. You know, so so we, we understood that. We, we had not appreciated the degree to which, uh, when I travel the world for Google now, I meet presidents of countries, and invariably they show me their control room where they can use Google Earth to see their whole country. So when something happens they can, you know, they can actually see exactly what's happening. So they can talk to people on the ground and say, are you by the big red building, are you next to that hill over there? You know, so, so they, they feel like, it's almost like uh, time travel. You know, they they can be places they can't really be because they're busy being the president, but they can, our prime minister or whatever, that they, 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 they can understand, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's, I never thought that I would meet, you know, 20 heads of state who all, who, whom Google Earth is an important part of their administration. I didn't expect that, you know. I didn't expect to see many countries using Google Earth in their military to understand what's going on with the borders and neighbors and, you know, illegal trafficking of things and smuggling. So, so, you know, we're thrilled that more awareness of the planet is leading to better decisions. That's
2: wonderful.
0: Professor Jonathan Gardner, a marine biologist at Victoria University, gave his inaugural professorial lecture last week. Now he's looking at the importance of marine protected areas around New Zealand, with particular reference to New Zealand's unique position as a country with a marine environment 15 times larger than its terrestrial area. So how are we doing with our marine protected areas? Well, as Professor Gardner explains, we're doing okay on genetic diversity across our marine protected areas. There's good connectivity, as he explains it, between these areas. Where we're not doing so well is in the number of marine protected areas we have and the size of them, which doesn't compare well when you look at the specifications that the best science in the world suggests we need to have to ensure we have healthy marine reserves protecting our biodiversity.
3: Basically, what we're seeing is that the pattern of genetic structuring, the connectivity within the populations, pretty much supports the marine reserve network that we presently have. And this is really interesting because the marine reserve network wasn't actually specifically set up to address this problem. So, in a sense, we'd be fortunate. And the map on the right shows the 34 marine reserves that we have. It doesn't yet show the other forms of protected areas that we have. So if you add on to the 34 marine reserves, these other types of areas that we have, then really we've got very good coverage. So the genetic information basically tells us that we have very good connectivity within our network. So the network at that most basic level is working really well. We have a network of 34 coastal marine reserves we built up this network over a period of years. We didn't explicitly start in the 1970s trying to establish a network. We had a fairly ad hoc way of putting new marine reserves on the map. But we've developed this network over a period of time, and it's doing fairly well. The genetic data suggests that the network that we have really is a network in the sense that it's connected. Different sites are talking to one another, if you like, like, because they are exchanging individuals. The plants and animals are moving backwards and forwards, at least at the larval dispersive stages. And that's the key thing which defines a network. And the network itself is really important because it provides stability and it provides some degree of insurance as well within the context of the wider New Zealand nation. We have recognition of the uniqueness of the system as well, the Comadex, the sub-Antarctic islands, at least the Auckland Islands, the fields as well, particularly well represented. But we still have some way to go because there are other unique areas which need protection uh, which may or may not in the future be afforded that protection. So based on international science, at the moment New Zealand's marine reserves are too small. We need to increase the average size by something like 50% based on spacing criteria and based on an average number, we have a long way to go in terms of where we need to be to establish full protection across all of the country. The MPA policy suggests that based on the 44 habitat types that we see and a minimum of two marine reserves or marine protected areas, that we may be aiming for 88 marine protected areas. That may well be too few. I think we need, in conclusion, a clear governmental and societal commitment to greater marine conservation. We face a number of important challenges now. We need to make really key decisions about what's going to happen. The debate about global climate change, about ocean acidification, these sorts of things, ongoing threats to the environment. Society needs to really engage with this and make decisions now about what's going to happen, and we need to make sure that the politicians understand the choices that we as a society want need to be enforced, need to be put in place, because the choices that we make now will profoundly affect what happens into the future. Something else that we need to think about is the size of the marine reserve itself. So in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been quite a push internationally to develop international science standards, if you like, for size and shape and spacing and distance between different green reserves, as New Zealand and many other countries start to develop networks of protected areas. As you might expect, there's a range of thinking about what really needs to be applied, but typically, we're looking at five kilometers as a minimum distance within the marine reserve, so any one dimension within the marine reserve, whether it's length or breadth or height, needs to be five kilometers. And if we take the most simple example, a circle, we say, well, we need something of the order of 20 square kilometers net, based on five kilometers diameter for a marine protected area. That's what international best practice tells us. If we look at the situation in New Zealand then, and if we include the five marine reserves from the west coast to the south, three of which are particularly large by musical standards, we're still something like achieving only two-thirds of the maximum size that's actually required for the marine reserves that we have. So in other words, we need to establish larger marine reserves to meet international best practice. In terms of the spacing, again, there's a wide variety of opinions. Some people are suggesting that we need marine reserves every 20 kilometers, which obviously is a fairly significant number of marine reserves. I'm saying uh, up to 100 kilometres. If we take a conservative estimate of 100 kilometres and we divide our 15,000 kilometres of the coastline mm-hmm. by that like 100, we end up with a number of like 150 marine reserves that are required based on conservative estimates. In terms of the number of marine reserves that are required for our comprehensive, for our adequate and for our representative network... The Marine Protected Areas policy suggests that the usual number of replica marine protected areas will be two within any one region. One of those will be a full no-take marine reserve, and the other one may be some other form of protection. It may be full no-take, it may be a lesser form of protection. But based on the 44 habitat types that we can recognise, as a minimum then we'll be looking at 88 marine protected areas, perhaps of varying levels of protection across the country. And you'll remember from the previous slide that we said we needed something like 150 just based on the coastline alone. We presently have 34, so we're a a fair way short of the 88 that we need based on minimum recommendations, and we're substantially short based on the spacing recommendations. The total area that's required varies, again, depending upon who you talk to. Typically, 10% is held as a minimum as a conservative estimate. At the moment, the full no take marine reserves within the exclusive economic zone constitute about 0.32% of the full EEZ. The benefit protection areas constitute 30% of the EEZ. We do have a variety of other forms of closures, as I've mentioned, and all in all, we have something like 32% of the total EEZ which is protected in some way, shape, or form. The question then becomes what level of protection does New Zealand society want for its areas which are closed off? If we're after full no-take protection, which is the top level of protection, then we have an awfully long way to go in terms of establishing new areas. If we're happy to accept lesser forms of protection, then one could argue that the 32% in fact is pretty good and we're a long way to going going towards meeting that target. What's going to happen offshore? Because at the moment, all of the marine reserves we have are coastal marine reserves. They're associated with the coast in, in some way. Other countries have established marine reserves, marine protected areas which are oceanic, not associated with the coastline. So one of the questions will be: are the protected areas enough in terms of the spatial coverage they have, the size they have, and also in terms of the habitat representation that we have within them? In terms of balance between conservation and exploitation, one of the key questions in the future will be with regard to the fishing industry and its uh, ideas of exploiting new crab resources around the Bounty Islands, for example, they established toothfish fishery in the Ross Sea and around Antarctica. But the question becomes, what kind of balance does New Zealand society want in terms of the conservation of its marine resources, in terms of the conservation of the biodiversity, versus the wealth that could be generated from the fishing industry, from oil, gas, and minerals? And one of the things that I've learned as a biologist, having been involved with green reserves for a long time, is that the biology is important, but it soon becomes clear that it becomes that green reserves are really more about what society wants rather than about what the biology says. New Zealand thinks it has a clean, green image. New Zealand citizens want wealth. They want to have the benefits of these sorts of things, but in many respects, they're not prepared to accept that there's often a trade-off involved.
1: What will our society decide in terms of where it wants to place the emphasis for conservation versus exploitation?
3: Resistance to antibiotic drugs is a growing problem in the medical world. We all know we should take our full prescription of antibiotics to ensure we don't inadvertently create a superbug impervious to the once miraculous powers of these wonder drugs but new research is pointing out that there may be other less obvious sources of antibiotic resistance. A study published today in the journal Science suggests that soil bacteria may be giving human pathogens a helping hand in building antibiotic resistance. One of the authors, Galtham Dantost, explained his research speaking to the Science Podcast.
2: I'm Nadia Ramlagan, and this is a AAAS podcast. Could soil be fueling the emerging crisis of antibiotic resistance? New research published in the journal Science suggests that soil-dwelling microbes are passing antibiotic resistance genes onto human pathogens. I'm talking today with Gautham Dantas, a professor at the Washington University School of Medicine and lead author of the study. You discovered seven resistance genes in soil-dwelling microbes that are identical to genes found in human pathogens. But previous research has pinpointed soil as a source of antibiotic resistance. What does your study tell us?
4: So yeah, indeed, um, many previous reports have identified the soil, uh, and specifically microbes in the soil, as a rich source of antibiotic resistance genes. If you find the same genes in two different bacteria, that indicates that those genes were exchanged recently. If the genes are different between two bacteria, then the exchanges occurred a long time ago. And so basically the low similarity that previous studies had seen between soil bacteria and pathogens seemed to indicate that recent exchange had not been occurring. So what's different about our study is, in contrast, we find numerous resistance genes in these non-pathogenic but drug-resistant soil bacteria that are exactly the same, at the nucleotide level, the same DNA sequence as a variety of resistance genes that have been found in pathogens from all around the globe.
2: Could these findings change current thinking about antibiotic resistance and ways to combat it?
4: I certainly hope so. I think what our work does is add meaningfully to a huge body of evidence from other people's work that's been accumulating that shows that we really are being imprudent in our use of antibiotics in both the clinic and in agriculture. You know, there's ample evidence to show that resistance rates in pretty much any bacterium which humans have had impact on have gone up. And now our work clearly ties the environment in terms of, you know, non pathogenic environmental bacteria to pathogens. And so I think hopefully what this will do is add to the voices who are advocating for sort of strong legislative incentives to increase development of new drugs because our pipelines are certainly drying up. But also to add for sort of prudent regulation of antibiotic use, both in agriculture and the clinic, one of the things to keep in mind is, you know, we don't have legislation even in this country that requires a reporting uh, public disclosure of antibiotic use in agriculture. I mean, So the approximate amounts are, I think, 70% of antibiotic use in this country is in food animals, only 30% in the clinic. We don't even know the exact numbers because uh, they don't need to be disclosed. So I think hopefully what this suggests, uh, what our work helps to, to support is this idea that, you know, if we want to curb antibiotic resistance, we need to be careful about how we use antibiotics in a lot of different walks of life.
2: That's Galtham Dantas from Washington University School of Medicine.
0: That's our show for another week. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to producer John Kerr from the Science Media Centre. To Science for the podcast segment on the antibiotic resistance. Check out the Cyblogs Network of science writers at cyblogs.co.nz. Some great posts this week. Uh, you can also stream the podcast from the website. Don't forget you can also download it from iTunes and Stitcher.com. Follow us on Twitter at cyblogsnz as our handle and like us on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Cyblogs. Check back in next Friday for another mix of science news and views with a Kiwi spin here on the SciBlogs podcast. Till then, go well.